following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. If you remember from last week, uh, I was the only one of the five elders that was representing us. That's because we went to the Gospel Coalition Conference. It was uh, a great time. What we wanted to do as we came back was take a moment and actually hear from plural pastors. So I'm going to call Jordan up for a moment in a second here to give us about five minutes, and then John Sweeney as well. And then I'm going to round it out uh, just with some exhortation for us. Remember, uh, we, we, we say this a lot. It's a reminder to you, these are your shepherds who will sit under the listening of, of the word preached this week. Um, and it very much was so good for our souls. And I'll, I'll, I'll speak about that a little bit more um, when, I, when I come to the end before we do uh, the Lord's table together as well. Um, but I'd ask you to take a moment and listen as they exhort and rebuke and encourage our hearts as well. Um, so if you'll do that, Jordan, you'll come for five minutes and then John as well. Thanks. Let me say really quickly, and maybe Chris will say this too, but uh, you guys, all of you who, who give, um, are part of this, so thank you. Uh, it was the finance committee and others, and then you as a body affirming uh, things to give the pastors ways in which they can be enriched with resources and events um, and creating a way in which um, Chris and I can uh, take part in conferences too, and so this was that for us. So we understand that as we go and we get to spend this time together and to, to learn that it is um, you uh, blessing us in that way, and so we thank you, and we trust too that it is not just a time for us to kind of go and have fun and a good time together, but that in some way what we are gleaning um, pours out into the life of the body as well. So thank you for that. Uh, Chris asked all of us to kind of just speak to something that um, struck us during the course of the few days that we were there. Uh, the conference as a whole was great, and Chris will speak more to the theme. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed was a breakout session that um, a worldview guy and a philosopher did on this big book called The Secular Age. And I sat there for an hour and kind of nerded out and kind of listened to them talk about secularism and what that means. And they used words like plausibility and seculosity and um, excarnation. Don't worry, I, I didn't know what half of those meant either. Um, but I'm not going to talk about that because I don't think that would serve us very well um, in this time together as I think of what can impact us as a body, um, though benefited from times like that and many others. But I thought what would serve us best um, for me to just take a couple minutes to speak about the breakout session that I missed. <laughs> um, so uh, the session was on lament, and it was um, a guy leading it that had written a book on lament, a pastor. And um, when it came to lament, I found myself in a position that afternoon to decide whether I was going to lament over the fact that I waited for an hour for a burger and was going to have to leave before getting it and catch my session, or that I was going to lament missing the session because I waited an extra 10 minutes past the hour to get my burger, and I chose the burger. <laughs> um, and so by the time I got that burger and headed to the room where the workshop was taking place, the door was locked. I'm like, oh no, I wanted to hear the session. So I went and I sat in on another session that didn't have a locked door um, that was also on suffering. Um, and I listened to that for a bit. 
But then what I did is on our drive home on Thursday, uh, I listened to a podcast that um, was an interview with this guy that did the workshop. And then, um, even better than that, I got an email Friday night or Saturday morning from the conference saying, all of our sessions and everything are out for audio now. Um, so as I was working in the, in the lawn yesterday, I turned on the session that I was locked out of. So I got to hear the session anyway. So even though I missed it, I still benefited from it um, and was thankful that I could catch it after the fact. So again, just a couple minutes to bring out a couple quick things. Lament is something that has been on my mind and heart in different ways as I consider um, us as a body, how we worship together. It's been on my mind as I've read through books like Lamentations. As you read the Psalms, almost a third of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. And so it's been on my mind in those regards. It's on my mind, uh, of course, in the pastoring realm. Um, as we, as a body, talk amongst ourselves and pastor and as the elders, pastor and shepherd, a lot of things taking place in our lives that are lamentable, both within our own sinful hearts or happening to us um, in the world around us. And so I think it is very important. So this workshop was on discovering the grace of lament. And the author defined lament this way. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And he worked through how basically every word in that definition is important. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. We understand, and we talk a lot about it in different ways um, as we function as a body, that we live um, in the in-between. We live in the already and the not yet. And so this in and of itself brings up a natural uh, dichotomy of sorts where we understand the hope that we have in the gospel, and yet we face sinful consequences both within and without, day in, day out. And we wrestle with that. And so lament is, should be, in the life of believers, a glorious thing, a glorious tool, an opportunity for us to speak and commune with God and, on one hand, wrestle with his plan and how he works, but at the same time rejoice in how he works and to be led in our wrestling with his character and with his choices that he makes for his glory, um, wrestling with that so that it leads us to a faith-filled trust in his plan. Um, one of the things he mentioned a bit, and I've, I've thought on this for a while too, and I think that throughout history, of course we see in scriptures people lamenting well and getting it. Throughout history in different times and different places, people have lamented well. Oftentimes the church, when facing persecution as a church corporately, um, knows how to lament. But I think in some ways... Uh, as the American church, and maybe like even the white American church or the majority culture American church, we, this is something that we've kind of pushed off. And there are probably different reasons for doing that. Um, but I think it is a sad thing to miss out on. What happens is when we take just one side of that dichotomy, the pain that we experience or the truths of God that we know, um, we can fall into one or another of the ditches on either side. We can a lot of times wrestle with pain by simply speaking platitudes to one another, right? We turn good truths about the promises of God into just like, I know you're struggling, but remember, God is faithful. Remember, God is good all the time. Now, are those things true? Yes, they are true. Sometimes when you hear them in your own circumstances, do you want to slap the person in the face that just said that to you? Yes, probably so. 
And so it's uh, a ditch on one hand is that we almost make the promises of God trite. And in so doing, we turn into our individual worship and love for God and then even corporate worship um, into something that almost tries to ignore the realities of sin. Um, and so we can turn our times of worship into like, hey, let's just like pump each other up. Let's remind each other of some promises that we almost end up just speaking to one another's platitudes um, to almost kind of get this uh, refilling of um, feeling or whatever to just go out and then face our consequences. But we realize all too quickly that is lost and we're left again wrestling with, with uh, the realities of our sinfulness and the sinfulness of the world. Of course, the other uh, ditch, the gutter on the other side, is to wallow in our pain, to wallow in despair, and to ignore the truths of Scripture, to ignore the promises that we have in Christ, and to know, as God's people, what the end of the story already is, right? Um, and so this beauty that God um, works out in his fellowship with his children and us with him is that he says, it's okay to wrestle with what I'm doing, um, but it is also cause to rejoice in what he's doing and to see him work through these um, situations and um, circumstances uh, to build our faith and love for him. And so you turn to passages like Psalm 13, and you see a child of God wrestle with his own realities. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Here's a guy like saying, all right, God, listen up. I'm wrestling with this. I don't know what you're doing. Are you going to be like this to me forever? Why am I feeling like this? Why are my circumstances like this? Listen, Lord, I want you to do this. <laughs> Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But this is key in lament, is there's wrestling with the realities but then there's a turn in light of truth. And that turn is often seen in a simple word like yet or but. And so, even therefore sometimes, in this case, Psalm 13, he says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In the midst of the hardest of times and the deepest of valleys, um, God's people can still rejoice in salvation and have cause to sing and thank the Lord. We know this because the end of the story is that God, as he makes all things new and right and ushers in the new heavens and new earth, will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There will come a time where a lament will no longer be needed because it is filled out in true faith, hope, and love. Um, and so I've been thinking on these things and challenged by them, um, rebuked um, myself in the way I often can either speak platitudes um, or just be okay with wrestling with the difficulties and not um, seeing those overcome by the goodness of God and Christ and his promises. Um, and I hope that as we carry on, and even as some of these things play themselves out in the life of the body, that we find ways to properly uh, lament as individuals and families, as community groups, and as a church body, even in our corporate settings. I think we do it um, 
passively sometimes, but to specifically focus in on when we are experiencing something as a church or when our society and our world is experiencing something that is well known, uh, that we take time to wrestle with that and say, God, what are you doing? Um, we want to see you work and then to rejoice in his good hand. We need to be like uh, the church in times past and present that through their circumstances understood that not all is good and right right now, but there will be a day coming when it is and we respond and such. So that's just uh, one thing that um, I am thankful for to be able to um, take part in that. And yes, it's all on audio. You can listen to it too. That was still helpful for us to actually be there <laughs> and to hear it or not hear it to miss one thing, um, but uh, to fellowship together and speak some of these things out and talk them out as, as elders. But we had, we had our wives there too. Um, Emily was the only one that wasn't able to be there right in the midst of everything with us. Um, but we are so thankful for, for that. And thank you again for the opportunity to, to learn and to grow. Well, good morning. Yeah, it was really great, and so we are very, very thankful for the ability to do that. I have a confession to make that I kind of became aware of uh, over this past week, and uh, <clears throat> the the theme of the conference had a lot to do with um, sharing the gospel, with preaching the gospel, and evangelizing. And my confession is, is that while I love to explain the gospel to people when I have those opportunities to do so... Um, I'm terrible at it. Uh, not terrible at the explanation. I'm terribly unwilling, oftentimes, to do it. And, uh, and I say that to my shame, uh, because we serve a great God. We have, we have good news. And uh, so anyway, it, that's just an area of my life that I'm kind of rebuking myself for. Uh, anyway, one of the speakers that I really, really enjoyed uh, spoke on Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and it's the little story about Jesus uh, teaching in a house. He, he was in this crowded, crowded house, all these people around, and some guys show up, these four guys show up with a friend of theirs who was paralyzed, and he, you know, all that para paralysis uh, means, right? So, and they could not get in because of the crowd. They couldn't, they wanted to bring him before Jesus to be healed. Of this and so, his and the way this guy told the story was fantastic. I won't do it justice, but anyway, they decided to get really resourceful, and as as four guys would do, right? So they start looking around and they end up climbing up on the roof and busting a hole through the roof of this house that presumably didn't belong to any of them, and and lowered Jesus down right in front or lowered this man down in front of Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their great faith, looked at the man and said, "Your sins are forgiven." Well, among the people that were in that room were a bunch of scribes, right? And so the scribes know that to forgive sins is something that belongs to God only, and so they're wondering about this blasphemer. They don't say anything out loud, but Jesus perceives in his heart what they're thinking. And so he addresses them, and he says, you know, which is easier, you know, to, to, uh, to tell a man to get up and walk who's paralyzed or to forgive someone of our sins? But to show you that I have authority to forgive sins, he looks at the man and he says, get up, take up your mat, and go. And the man does so. And oh, by the way, he forgives him for his sins. So there's a few principles there. One is the importance of preaching the word. And that's what Jesus was doing when he was in this house. You know, God in his sovereignty, I'm sure, set up this whole situation. But, but Jesus was really there simply to teach people and to preach the word. And so that's something we need to be about doing as well. It's also the importance of recognizing physical and spiritual needs of people. And I think in this church in particular, we are awesome at recognizing people's physical needs. We just yesterday, a bunch of us got together and helped move some woman that most of us hardly even know, uh, that we know through the CPC ministry there. Uh, and, and we do this kind of thing all the time, particularly we're 
we're awesome movers, right? So we like to move people. But we do lots of other things too. We help people with their landscaping. We help people with meals and things when they're, when they're uh, you know, having a hard time and those kinds of things. Uh, and we particularly help people within our body, but we are also, I think, pretty good at helping people that are outside of our body or not even believers necessarily. Uh, but I know for myself, I have a hard time bridging that gap between making the physical need met and then relating that to the to a spiritual need. And uh, Dave Doucette did a great job at this last week. He had a, a lady in his neighborhood who suddenly passed away, and a bunch of us went over there to help unload her house and get it into a trailer and all that. And he just gathered us all around to pray for this woman, you know. So very clearly she saw the gospel there and, and kind of helping her to, to recognize some spiritual need that she may have had. So um, anyway, so there are also in this story three characteristics of Jesus' authority. He has the authority to know our hearts. He has authority to meet, uh, to heal our illnesses. And then he also has the authority to forgive our sins. And again, what a great, what great news that is to tell people. Uh, so anyway, then he diverted into two pretty hilarious stories that I will do my best to very well condense down. And again, I encourage you to listen to, the, to these uh, um, recordings. But he was talking about a story when he was in high school. Uh, one day, his, uh, this is, so this is going to age me and probably age, not age some of you. There used to be a thing called an arcade where you went to go play your video games. You didn't have them on your phones. And in fact, there were no video phone, there were no smartphones then or really any kind of cell phone then. So he calls up uh, this guy, the youth leader of this church, calls up this guy and his buddy and they say, hey, let's meet down at the arcade this afternoon. All right, great. We're going to go run down and stick our quarters in these machines and play Pac-Man all afternoon or whatever. So they get down there, and the, the youth leader's got a camcorder. That's a thing, a camera that you used to have that you held up to your hand, and it had a little tape in it that you recorded stuff on. There was no cell phones then, again. So, uh, so like, okay, what's the story with this, with this uh, camcorder? So he says, we're going to do a survey of the teens in this arcade. And I'm like, all right, well, that sounds kind of fun. Are we going to still get to play video games? Yeah, we'll get to play video games. So, so they start interviewing teens there on their um, spiritual understanding about some different things. And so, you know, he's got it on his video. Hey, we're just doing this little survey, you know, what do you think about Jesus, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and then, you know, they get to some kid inevitably who didn't know anything about Jesus. And he goes, okay, well, this is great. So this is the, the youth leader. He goes, oh, okay, well, that's great. So my friend Dave here is going to share the gospel with you. Dave? And Dave's like, uh, okay, so he explained the gospel to him, and, and it really got him going, thinking about how you explain the gospel to people. And uh, so anyway, I thought that was kind of a funny story uh, of this poor guy caught like a deer in the headlights. Um, then uh, a couple of years later when he was in college, he was at Bible college or something, and so one of their things they would do is go out, they'd partner with various churches in Louisiana and stuff uh, to go out and, again, do some street witnessing and that kind of thing. And uh, so these two guys uh, were like the last guys to draw a church, and they drew this church that was located, a little tiny church in the middle of the French Quarter of New Orleans. So anybody ever been to New Orleans or you know about New Orleans, it's uh, kind of a place of debauchery and uh, not, a, not a super uh, spiritually high place. And all that. So it's, you know, in the middle of Bourbon Street. There's lots of bars around. Um, there's practice of voodoo. There's palm readers, fortune tellers, that kind of thing. So as, you know, resourceful college uh, guys would do, they kind of look around. And, and in New Orleans, you know, you can go to these places and there'll be a, a round table with a black tablecloth and candles and this person with a crystal ball in front of them. And they'll read for, for a nominal fee of $5 or $10, they'll tell you your fortune. So they're like, ah, oh, we can do this. So they got a little table with a black tablecloth and some candles and sat down. They put a sign up, fortune teller, free. And so naturally, everybody goes to them, right, and everything. So they're like, yeah, we can tell your fortune. We can read. We know how to read the future. And so they'd ask them some basic questions about sin and sinfulness and stuff like that. And they say, yeah, we see your future. It's not looking good. 
and they'd share the gospel with these people. And I just thought this was such an awesome way to go kind of do something a little crazy, I guess, but, but a way to step out and share the good news with people. They were doing it not to be underhanded in any way, but they were really just sharing the good news with these people. I just thought it was outstanding. So one of Cornerstone's key values is mission, uh, where we talk about how our daily encounters and events are just opportunities for ministry with us. And I know for myself, I don't take that nearly as seriously as I ought to. And so I just want to exhort all of us. I, I imagine I'm probably not alone in that. I know there are people here who do do a wonderful job with that. But uh, I am, again, to my shame and embarrassment, not among those who does a great job. So I've really started thinking through how I can do that. So I uh, just want to encourage you to persevere in personal evangelism that is full of faith. And remember that the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So uh, anyway, just want to leave you with that. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to ask Nathan to come up to start us off, uh, and then I'm going to have Caleb come in a moment. Yeah, so as Chris said, I want to share with you a couple of things that my heart has been thinking about since uh, attending the conference, some of the things that stood out to me, some of the things that, I, that convicted me and uh, ultimately exhort me to live a life of, of godliness, especially in the area of evangelism, and, I, and I'm hoping that these things that have been in my heart would be helpful for you too. So Four things, uh, I'll just say them all right now. Sovereignty, priorities, proclamation, and persistence. So I'm going to just dial into each of those things. So God's sovereignty. God is orchestrating all of his history. He, he, of course, was sovereign at creation. He was sovereign at the cross. He's sovereign now. He's sovereign in the future, and he's sovereign in all history in between. So as it relates to evangelism, when we are proclaiming the gospel and we're sharing it with other people, we, we know that even in those moments, God is sovereignly working out his plan to bring people to himself, and we, we want to seek to be faithful to be a part of that. And so there's a lot of confidence there and joy just knowing that God is good and he is sovereign in all things. Secondly, priorities. A couple things I'm thinking about as an individual, as a family, as a community group, as, as being a part of a church family. What are my priorities? Also, in the areas of where I find myself in my job, in my, in my neighborhood, other places, uh, I find myself with maybe with extended family, um, where are my priorities? Also, how I use my time, uh, my skills, my money, the home that we have, other possessions, what are my priorities in those things? What about my priorities in conversations with other people? Am I talking about myself, or do I, or do I keep things at the surface level, or do I try to um, engage in conversation that eventually gets to heart matters, the things of God? I'm asking these questions because in all areas of life, we need to ask ourselves, are we pursuing the things of this world or the kingdom of God? Do we have Christian priorities? I think of the quote uh, by Jim Elliott, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So to think about that in light of our, our lives, we, we cannot keep our life for ourselves. We must deny it uh, and live for him, live for God alone. And in, and in that way, we, we gain what we, we cannot, or excuse me, we, we, we give up we can't, what we cannot keep and gain what we, we cannot lose, which is eternal life in God who, who holds us fast. So how does all that relate to evangelism? Uh, 
well, we, we need to make sure that our priorities line up in a way that we're, we're living in a life that demonstrates that we want to share the gospel with other people. It, it's hard to do that, but uh, we, and, and sometimes we need to be creative uh, and, and uh, intentional, but, and, and certainly not ashamed of the gospel, and, and we need to involve each other. So as we think about our priorities, let's make this a group effort and, uh, and, and strategize. I, I also think about, I know a lot of you are familiar with the dispatches from the front documentaries. You see those folks, they're in other countries, and they, and they require a lot of intentionality just to think about how to bring the gospel to the people that they're around, and they have to cross cultural, language barriers, a lot of, in a lot of similar ways, even though we're not in quite the same level of intensity in terms of we don't have to maybe learn a new language or cross quite the cultural barriers, we still need to be intentional strategizing how to proclaim the gospel to the people around us. And, and, that, and a lot of that starts with just evaluating our priorities. Thirdly, proclamation. We need to proclaim a clear message of the gospel when we're sharing the gospel. We need to explain the core truths of the gospel around us, and anything less than that is not really evangelism. We need to tell people around us the, of the conditions of our hearts and how they are opposed to God without Jesus. We need to tell them about God's wrath against sin. We also need to tell them the good news about how Jesus took that for us, how he took God's wrath for sin, how he bore the weight of our sin, how he died on the cross, how he was buried and rose after three days and how he is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And we, we also need to tell them that they need to look to Jesus, to turn from their sin, to repent, and put their faith and trust in him as their Savior and Lord. In evangelism, it's not just about, and Chris will be alluding to this later, obviously we don't want to just be guilting ourselves into doing it, but rather uh, that it would be so, the gospel and God, would be so precious to us that we couldn't help but want to bring it up with others. And yeah, that does mean being awkward sometimes, making and starting conversations and asking probing questions that maybe some people would find uncomfortable, but we, need to, we do need to step out and uh, just remember, how will people believe if they don't hear? Finally, persistence. Uh, and this, this really stood out to me, especially in the area of extended family, and I'm sure it's true for many of you too. I know it's true for many of you. As we share the gospel in the long term and have multiple conversations with the same people over and over about, about the gospel, answering their objections and just explaining the truth, don't lose heart, don't grow weary, don't become cynical, don't become apathetic, don't grow, hold, or don't grow cold. Rem, uh, persist and remember that it's important and, uh, and that uh, with all the strength that God gives us from his Holy Spirit, that we would, that we would persevere to that end to continue to proclaim him to, to those around us. So there's a couple of things. I'll turn it over to Caleb. So first, I just wanted to say thank you for just allowing us to step away for a few days and just um, focus both on <clears throat> Jesus Christ and, um, and then on how we relate then to him because of who he is. So, um, you know, some of the, I'm not a big conference guy. Um, I don't like them. Um, so uh, a lot of my experiences with conference have been with a lot of fanfare and horn tooting and people thinking highly of themselves and that because of such things, they would like to share that with you. 
And, um, you know, it, it was refreshing in this conference as well just to be, um, be with some people that, um, despite their pedigree, um, really caring very little for themselves, and, um, but yet caring a whole lot for the Savior. And, um, and I don't think it was false um, just to fit in with a, a humble-looking crowd. Um, I think that it was uh, genuine, and I think because of that, out of that, you know, came a lot of good. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I think for me, in really approaching um, this time uh, somewhat, it's just nice every once in a while to be able to sit still and listen and listen to the truth and then allow the Spirit to work in you and just, you know, kind of beat you up with, with some things that you just have not sat still long enough to to think about. And uh, so a few things. Uh, do you ever take time to ask yourself the question, what am I doing with this life? Um, I think a lot of times we are so busy with life that even the good things of life, um, we're so busy with the things of life, even the good things of life, that we often don't take time to reflect on what we are doing, and especially not why we are doing what we're doing. And um, though often these thoughts are wasted on the existential. Um, I think that for us, um, we are called as believers to be thinking those thoughts regularly because we're not living this life for ourselves. We are called to live it so much um, beyond that that if we fail, and I think in my life I've seen the failure of running so fast that I forget why I'm running so fast. And, um, so, and consequently, where I am running. So um, I was fortunate enough to spend some time doing that this week, and here's our, some, here are just a, a few of the takeaways that I had that hopefully I can pass on to you. First, um, my plans often have very little to do with the coming kingdom. Although I would say that I desire to make all of life about Jesus in reality, I'm often scared to share my faith. I'm, I have a fear of failure. I have a fear that... Um, it will impact my relationships on friends, families, and co uh, my family, coworkers. Um, and that's a problem, you know, because we don't live this life. Um, we are not called to live this life um, out of fear. What is, you know, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And yet, um, knowing those truths and then getting from A to B, from knowing the truth and not deviating into shame, because that is what we've been saved from for the very Jesus that we're proclaiming, but yet taking that and thinking through out of a love for Christ, that love then constrains us to go beyond um, the love of self that keeps us from doing what we know we should be doing. <laughs> Um, and we're focused internally on how will I then be relate, or even the, the thought that if I can maintain this relationship just perfectly, then this person will obviously come to Christ. Rather than allowing the Spirit of God through the Word of God to convict the heart of sin, regardless of the messenger, regardless of my failures and how I share the truth, that he would then take that message and plant it deeply into the heart. And, and then bring about true and lasting change that I believe only he can do. And yet, in my practice, often, I believe that if I can set up this relationship just right, if I can um, 
if I can talk to these people just so, if they can see me live out my faith, if they can see that we have a good relationship, then I have this platform, this super special platform that God can use. When in reality, if you dig down deep into it, it's a heart of pride and love of self that doesn't want to be shamed for the sake of the gospel. So that's one. Uh, secondly, I was really struck with, and Chris will probably go here as well, I suppose, um, but Mark 8, 34 through 38, um, <laughs> the message that we heard, um, whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Uh, for what shall man give in exchange for his soul? And that passage didn't impact me in the sense that it caused me to doubt by my lack of um, godly activity that it caused me to doubt my salvation, but rather um, it really impressed me more and more um, on the brevity of life and a call to the whole life, our whole lives to pursue Christ in the gospel. In that, um, and that is in context of Jesus calling us to um, take up our cross and follow him. And what kind of hit me right between the eyes is that call. Often when we use the terms taking up the cross and following Jesus, we think of when it says deny himself. We load denial of self with a ton of different things. Well, that means I don't do this, and that means I don't do that, and that means I'm going to, you know, it's like an ascetic, a call to asceticism in which we're like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of everything, and the only thing I'm going to do is stand up and proclaim the gospel on the street. Right? That's what, that we assign this, like, this asceticism to that when uh, the speaker that we listened to like, hit it hard. And he's like, don't load the text with something that God never intended. The denial of self is the denial previously in context is Peter seeing Jesus and saying, no, you cannot die. This is my idea of who you are. This is you're my like, triumphant um, ruler. You cannot die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. The denial of self in this case is denial of our expectations of what the, the religion that we have created. And, and in, instead of pursuing what we know to be true about Jesus and the gospel, a whole life pursuit of Christ and the gospel. And so that one definitely uh, impacted me, um, that we should not assign um, anything to the cross bearing that, is, that the scripture does not. So the final takeaway that I had, I think, was that we have, though a profound faith in the sense of what God has done for us, we have a very simple faith. And yet you can have these guys stand up with all their PhDs and their pedigrees, and they know so much about the scripture. You know, guys that write the books that a lot of us read, and they speak in a lot of the podcasts that people listen to. I don't even know what that is. I just thought I'd say it. <laughs> However, uh, you know, but yet... These guys are saying, look at Jesus. Look at this one who has given himself for us. Look to him. And then, and then, and then it's, it's as simple as doing what we know the scripture teaches. And it is, it is be, a, be a person who prays. Not in the sense that like if you're not praying, God's not satisfied with you. He's not happy with you. You know, not in like a, a begrudging sense, but pray because it's so clear. We are to pray. Obey, obey the scriptures, right? So pray, obey the scriptures, share the gospel, be sensitive to the spirit and his leading and all of the above. 
And for me, like just thinking, like boiling it down, you've got, you have guys who have the ability to, of tremendous thought in the scriptures, and yet they're pleading with the body of Christ to listen to what God says and obey it, to pray for um, the needs of the body, and to watch the Spirit's power impact the world for Jesus Christ. So uh, I guess I don't need to pray, but that was what God was, uh, was doing in my heart. So I pray that it would be a blessing to you. Let me read 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 12 for a moment, and I'll go forward. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. It's not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Let's pray for a moment. God, in these short moments, I ask that you would give us wisdom. I ask that we would hear the word with listening ears. I, I have to have your spirit working right now, God. And tomorrow, and this afternoon, and the next day, God, you must do this. Lord, our ministry is not as though if we do all the right things and check off the right boxes, then you'll respond. God, this is your work. You are Jesus, and you will build the church. So I ask that you would build our church now as one small pocket of believers, and even in an area that has many believers, and in the world who are calling every kindred, tribe, people, and nation to know Jesus Christ and to know salvation in your name alone. I pray that you work in us through this short time. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, my, va- my view of vacation has kind of changed uh, over the years. It used to be when I was a kid, it meant like you got off school, it meant that you were like going to another place. It meant that you got to eat like a lot of good things that you really liked, like especially ice cream. Like that was a big highlight for me, at least a vacation. Um, but now my view of vacation has changed a little bit. And I think I could probably speak for any young parents here that say, any time that I get eight hours straight of sleep, that's vacation. Um, this was not a vacation per se. It had many vacational elements to it. Um, We were separated from our normal rhythms, like I said, Um, not doing our specific jobs, uh, eating a little bit here and there, enjoying times with friends at different places. Indianapolis, I mean, a great vacation destination. Uh, That's a joke. Uh, 
But last Sunday afternoon, after we finished up, Kristen and I headed to the airport, and um, we were dropped there off there by the Gordies, and then Zach picked us up on our way back, and all, everyone's effort to help us get there, and we got in, we Ubered in, we kind of get there at like 12 or midnight, and uh, John had sent me this picture. I'm going to show it to you next week. I don't have time this week. John sent me this picture of a bunk bed and said, you guys got top, top, top bunk. I thought he was joking. He wasn't joking. So Kristen and I get there, and it's 12, 15, it's dead quiet, and we go into this room like, oh, it's really a bunk bed. We are actually going to be sleeping in the nosebleed. So we did, um, and it was, it was actually very nice. It was a, a queen-size mattress, but we did have to rope in and wear our harnesses to make sure it didn't fall out. Uh, a little uncomfortable, but very important, you know. Um, that's <laughs> safety first, that's right. Um, we slept, as Caleb said, in the nosebleeds, but uh, we made it through, and we had a great time together. Um, we are, there are very few times that you get a chance to take three days off from life and sit and listen. And as I said, that's what we got a chance to do, to sit and hear the preaching of the word, not to work, 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 but to listen and let it just soak. I remember by the end of Tuesday, Nathan's like, I'm numb. I've got so much in my brain and my heart, you know, um, so much to think about, so much to believe, so much to pray for, so much to repent of, so many things to come back and say, how do we then also live this way? Not just that we got to this conference, it was a spiritual high, it was great, you guys should go next year, but rather say this is a, a pounding beat, sounding drum of scripture to call us back to live this way. Um, the conference was called Conversations with Jesus. And what it did is it took just eight times, uh, and there are, there are eight preaching sessions about an hour long, and then Jordan talked about these breakout sessions are about an hour long each as well on Tuesday afternoon. And it was just plumb full of stuff that was pointing us to Christ. But these eight conversations that they highlighted were all Jesus throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in these Gospels, showing us Jesus interacting with people who were in need. Some sort of need, uh, whether it was Nicodemus, who was saying, what does it mean to be born again to the woman at the well? Uh, or to Mar Martha and Mary, who have lost their brother Lazarus? Um, or, or, or even just to the crowds? And none of these things are haphazard. None of these conversations are off the cuff. Oh, we just had this conversation. It just came up. Jesus is doing something in each one. It's all on purpose. The conference emphasis was conversations with Jesus because each of these conversations had one point that he was the answer to every one of their problems. Their problems were all different. All of them were different, but each of them got to the point where Jesus would not only help them with their real problems, with their moving, with their uh, need for to be a demon-possessed girl to be, have the demon cast out, or to make a dead man live again, or to give bread or water or living water. But every time, Jesus is doing something very specific. He's proclaiming himself. He's going over and over and over again through these very regular conversations of things that people really need, and he's telling them, this is not what you need the most. You have a very big need, and it's not just that you'd have water from this well, or that you'd be able to stand up and walk around, as John said. Over and over and over again, he points out their, their true spiritual need. Now, John started talking about evangelism, and you and I, uh, we can kind of like bristle a little bit when we hear about this and we're like, uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't really want to do this, but I know I feel bad. I, I'm supposed to do something like this. And, uh, 
you know, this is where you're going to tell me I'm supposed to do more evangelism, and, you know, I, I don't feel really good about that. Usually what we feel about that is, like, when our kid is part of some sort of club, and they're doing a fundraiser, and we're like, oh, i got to sell Yankee candles in October to all my friends so that my kid can stay with this club. Okay, I'll sell the candles and do that stuff. None of us like to do it, but we're like, okay, it's going to help somebody, and we'll, we'll just get it done. Some of us hate it so much that we'll just pay however much it is to buy the candles and let them sit in our house. We don't care. We're like, I don't want to talk to people about this. A lot of us view evangelism as though it's some sort of judgmental, confrontational, slimy car salesmanship. I will say, I often feel that way, and what John is even bringing up is some things that we've talked about is fear of man. And we somehow think that if people view us that way, that we have something to lose. I do. I know I'm not alone. John, we're not alone. I know that. Because that's the struggle of every one of your heart. Because we see each other. We go to the store or we go to our neighbor and they see us day in, day out. And they can make judgment claims on us. But Jesus, I've never seen Jesus. I don't think any of you have either. We haven't seen him in the flesh or heard him respond or anything like that. And yet we have. We see over and over again in Scripture what he says about our lives and what he has called us to, and who he is. He, uh, he's very much <laughs> caring about how we live our lives. So I, I want us to come back to this with a little bit of an open mind, understanding when we talk about evangelism, it's not like the one time a year fundraising that we have to do for the Girl Scouts. Although that would be a pretty good one. Everyone likes cookies. Everyone loves you that way. I'm talking about, though, like that this is eternal. This is ultimate stuff we're talking about. This is literally life and death. This is something that has changed. You, we all claim, if you're in this room, you've, you've claimed that this has changed your life. That the Spirit had the power to make you alive. This is not about us twisting each other's arms to go say the Jesus story so we have a more, more people in this room. Who cares about that? There are people dying under divine judgment and going to hell. And I'll be the first to say, I don't love them enough. And I'll go one step further, it's far worse. I don't love my Savior enough. If we understand who he is, we understand that evangelism, the telling of the good news of Jesus Christ, it only makes sense for us because it's changed every single part of our life. It's made us whole. It's made us be able to say to one another, the new man has come. Like This old man can die. This old man, the world can mock and ridicule, but who cares? We have Christ. There will be a day when the Father comes and the, and the Son and all of his holy angels, and they, if we have cared more about this life, will turn their back on us. That's significant. That means something. That's like a life to live. That's worth you and me saying, do I actually love Jesus or do I actually love myself? Because I'll tell you the truth, I love myself a lot. And I stand with John. I found myself broken throughout the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, not loving my family members, not loving my neighbors, more concerned about how they saw me, or just thinking, you know, I don't want to be confrontational. <laughs> I don't want to be like just stirring up all these problems. Or like I've, they've heard it so many times already. 
they don't need it. Like, that's such a stupid thing to say. And it's an unbelieving thing to say. It's a sinful thing to say. I'm not even going on my notes right now. I, I, I just am, I, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed sometimes uh, by my own pride and fear of man, and I care more about what people think of me uh, than I do that they would not burn in hell. Or who God is, who he claims to be, and his son Jesus, who's given us new life. Um, if you remember, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just talk about Mark 2 for a moment, um, what John did. When the man comes through the roof, what's the first thing that Jesus says to him? Like everyone thinks this is like, like you would think, like, Take up your bed and walk. Amazing. Jesus has done it. What's Jesus' point in all of these conversations? The first thing he says to him is, your sins are forgiven you. Because he's recognized his faith. Jesus is not concerned about making these people walk only. He is. He's not worried about feeding a bunch of people only. He is. These are all means to an end. All these things show us that we need the living bread, the bread of life. We need the living water. This woman at the well, she has to keep on drawing and drawing and drawing. And Jesus knows everything about her. And what she actually needs is the living water. What Lazarus actually needs is not just to be raised from the dead either. He needs the resurrection and the life who Jesus claims to be. I, 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 I think that the real problem for us is not that we don't love people enough, actually. I think it's that we don't know and love Jesus enough. And I'm not just making a, a silly, trite saying. I, I know that that's true because my own heart loves so many other things instead of loving my Lord and Savior. And if we understand who he is, if we know that we're not just enamored by the miracles and the free food and the ability for him to tell the future, um, but rather that he can save your soul? That's astounding. This is astounding news that should really blow us away. And we should be not only rejoicing, but then say, I gotta tell someone else because I know they don't know this truth. Or if I'm honest about my neighbors too, they've heard it. A lot of, we live in the South. I mean, everyone's either a Christian or they've heard of Jesus and they're okay with him. They're okay with him being the creator of the universe. They're okay with him dying on the cross. They're okay with him taking them to heaven. They're fine with all that. But they're not okay with you saying you are responsible before him and you've sinned against him and what you deserve is hell. No one's really okay with that message because I'm not okay with that message. We talked about this last week, the Canaanites. The reason we struggle so much with them is because we know that we are like the Canaanites, that we have rebelled against God. And what we deserve is hell, destruction, certain divine judgment. We have what Paul has talked about this treasure in these jars of clay, these earthen pots. He's talking about the thing that was made from dust that he breathed life into, our bodies. He has given us that. And it is not to have and to hold. It is not for us to hoard. It is not for us to keep in here in these four walls here and do a really good job at preserving and defending it and making sure that it just stays here. One of the guys said, the best way that we can preserve and defend the gospel is by giving it away. That it is the good news of Jesus Christ. So guys, uh, I haven't even preached anything what I put down here. Um, I, I, I just want to share with us um, something that's, that's what's going on in my own heart and life. I'll say one more thing. 
Maybe you have, maybe you have spoken Christ to your, 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 uh, your family members, those who you love, or maybe your neighbor, um, and they've rejected. The other thing that I was just so pummeled about was that I don't pray for them as though it's the Spirit who opens our eyes. I'm so concerned that I do the right thing and I have the right things to say. Am, am, I, am I alone here? No, like, like, do we not want to make sure we have all the right things to say? I gotta give from creation to revelation. I gotta get all the stuff in there. I gotta make sure they understand it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Make sure some of my finer points of theology are worked out in there and make sure they get this whole message. If they get that, then I can wash my hands. If they say no and it's done. Who gives life? We must pray that he would give life to our city, to your neighbor, to your family, to those that are in your household, your children. We must plead that God would work, for it is only him who can make us born again. You can't do that. You can't do that. It's only our God. So I call us to those two things today, that we would open our mouths to speak the truth of who our Savior Jesus is, but then that we would love him and love our neighbor enough to pray that God would save their souls. And then it would be a drumbeat for us to say, hey, how did you speak to that guy about Christ? I want to know. I want to do better at that so that I can clearly represent who Jesus is. And let's sit down and pray. Hey, let's pray. Who, who's your neighbor, Brian? Let's pray for him right now. Let's make this a serious thing so that it's a normal part of our life, that when we think through what it means to know Christ, that we both want to give that love and message to others, but that we rejoice in it together. I'm going to ask the men to come forward for a moment. We're going to uh, pass out the communion elements together. Um, but as we do, we have an opportunity not only to preach Christ to each other, but uh, there's something that happens at my, my house about every night, almost every night. We, we try to have our family meal together. I, 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 I'm a terrible father, I think, but this is, and I shouldn't measure my fatherhood on this, but I'm like trying for my children not to eat all the food before we've even done anything together. I'm like, hold on, just stop. Stop eating what your mother's made in there. Stop touching your brother, all this stuff. Just wait a second. What I'm trying to do is create like a good opportunity for us to stop and be thankful and to thank the Lord. And Kristen's like, it's just, just pray in your heart, right? You know, you're just, just make it. Like, but I'm trying to make a good habit of us stopping for a moment and realizing that the gifts in front of us are good ones. 1 Timothy 4, 4 tells us that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. We, we make a practice of that before we sit down and eat food. We usually thank the Lord uh, before or after the service. We thank the Lord for the things that he has done. Thanksgiving is a holiday dedicated to Turkey. I mean, to thanking the Lord. Or it should be, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. How much more as we come to the table? L let me just read a few verses. Matthew 26, 27. Clue in on Thanksgiving, ready? And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. Mark 14, 23. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Luke twenty two nineteen, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This morning, 
we've rejoiced in the gift of Jesus Christ. We remember that this is a gift to be given. It is the good news to give to all men, to the world, he says. For God's loved the world that he gave his only son. He loves the world and calls them. And I'm fine with us saying this is a legitimate call to the world to come to know Jesus Christ. And I'll stop one second. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't know this Christ, come talk to me or anyone around you that knows Jesus Christ so that you might know salvation through Jesus or just repent and believe the gospel. This is your greatest need that you would be saved from certain divine judgment for your sin and rebellion. This morning we rejoice in that gift. We've preached the gospel. But is it not on us to receive that good gift with thanksgiving? Is it not on us then as we approach the table, this time we call communion with God, that we thank him for the blood that he shed and his body to be bruised as we read this morning in Isaiah 53? Uh, You are going to get something probably completely different than the first service got. Just letting you know. Uh, I was met with Matt and Beth Shellhart, and they're like, we're going to have to create two podcasts because it's going to be totally different uh, content, which is probably true. Um, I just want to say again, thank you um, for the support and prayers. Because I know different people, hey, praying for you at the conference. Excited to see what God does in your hearts. And he did continual work. Thank you for uh, sending these men and a lot of other help to get all these different people out to Indianapolis, destination vacation, I'll tell you, and uh, to support us sitting and listening to the word of God and us not, not necessarily all about working, getting these things done. Because um, I'll tell you, in January, we did an elders retreat and it was excellent, but we worked. I mean, I was tired when I left that time. I mean, we were working through scriptures. We were laboring in prayer. We were discussing late into the night, working through what is to come and how we are to obey Christ and follow him and lead this, this body. And this is an opportunity to sit and listen. And listen we did. I mean, we, uh, we were encouraged and rebuked. And over and over again, uh, we just heard from God's, uh, other of his people, preaching to our own hearts. Um, so this week, all five of the elders and their wives, except for Emily, she had some good reasons she had to stay away, but uh, we missed her very much. But the rest of us were uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in Indianapolis um, at the, a conference called the Gospel Coalition Conference. It was made up from, let's see, Monday afternoon till Tuesday, I'm sorry, till Wednesday afternoon. So we got about roughly two days of content smashed in there in three days. Uh, there's eight different preaching sessions, each about an hour long, uh, three workshops, which each an hour long, and we were plumb full of content. I mean, excellent, constant work in the word that these men and women had done for us to proclaim Christ. Um, and I think Nathan said it well by Tuesday night. He's like, I'm a little bit numb because I just got so much stuffed into my head and my heart, things to, to think about, to chew on, but things to belief and things to repent of and things to pray and things to bring back and encourage and exhort one another with. So again, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity um, that you, you had back in, uh, and members that are covenant members here uh, had said this is what we think is important for you guys to do something like this and gave the money to do that. So we want to say thank you. That's, that's an, a blessing to us to build back into our own hearts and lives. And if you're not usual and mem- or a person that comes to Cornerstone, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. And this is a very strange service to you. 
but it's, again, an opportunity for us to both that we received, but we want to make sure that you understand uh, what's going on in our own hearts and lives as well, as we are a family and we speak together these things. So last Sunday afternoon, Chris and I get on a plane, uh, headed out to Indianapolis. We get there, like, after midnight, we... Uh, I got a text from John that I thought was kind of a joke of like, hey, here are your sleeping quarters. And we get there and it, no, it's for real. It's a bunk bed. Like we are top shelf. Me and Kristen are climbing into a, a bunk bed. Night, thankfully, it was nice. It was a queen size, but still uh, we're coming down from the altitude sickness a little bit. But uh, it, was, it was pretty good. We had a great time together. Um, we're very thankful for that. But seriously, what was most important for us is that we're constantly looking into the word and hearing, and soaking, and almost marinating in this. And then we go back to the, we'd be eating lunch, and like none of the lunch got eaten, we're just talking about all the stuff that's going on in our own hearts, and what we need to do, and ask God as we sit and listen, that we would hear and believe the truth. And all, as all that is going on, I realize that life still happens here as well. Um, struggles happen. People have died. Um, Zach in our own, in our own uh, congregation, his grandfather's died. People have gotten sick. People have struggled with other people in their family. Sin has happened. The things keep going on that are around us. We start to understand a very, very small way what Jared read to us this morning. The suffering that we now understand rightly like our Savior. Although we, we, we understand nothing of what he went through. But we start to understand it correctly when we think about it. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 12 for us. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let sh light shine into dark, out of darkness, has shone in, our, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Let me take a quick moment and pray. God, we thank you for your work and your servants, these people, our family together, Cornerstone. I pray your Holy Spirit's work that we would believe the truth and that you would use us for the sake of your kingdom and your glory, that we'd find ultimate joy in you, not in us being something. In one sense, Lord, may the, corner, the name of Cornerstone never be known, but may Christ be known in Southampton Roads, and that you would call many to yourself. We thank you for your great love and ask for you, Lord, to do a work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.
there are very few times that we get a chance to do something like this. Um, and what I want to do is just give you a quick rundown of what the theme and topic of the conference was. That's all. I'm going to cut to the chase. This is a conference called Conversations with Jesus. Over eight sessions, it went throughout the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, and it gave us conversations that Jesus had with several different people, from the crowds to Nicodemus, uh, to the woman at the well, to Martha and Mary after Lazarus had died. And all these conversations are purposeful. They're not haphazard. All of them have one main subject, the good news. The real good news, not of healing necessarily or treasure or uh, living like water alone, but the good news of Jesus himself, that he has come to give himself, as Jared read, as a sacrifice so that we might have healing, so that we might be made whole, so that we might be saved. The conference emphasis was something like this. The gospel is best preserved and defended by giving it away, as Jesus did himself, giving himself for the sake of the kingdom. The proclamation, the telling of the good news is absolutely essential if we actually believe this news. It is part and parcel of who we are because we realize the great gift of Jesus Christ to the world. Remember that it's good news. News isn't held up in a room and just stayed there. No, we all read it all over the papers. Millions of papers created all over the internet. The news goes, goes, goes. This is news. It's to be told, in other words. It's not some personal philosophy. It's not some correct telling of history. It's not like a way of explaining a way of life. It's not the backstory to our morality. It is the good news, new to be, news to be told to those who haven't heard it or to those who have heard it and need to hear it correctly over and over and over again. It's at this point that some of you are getting a bit squirmy and like, oh, here we go. Now, this is when you're going to tell us, when you talk to others about Christ more, right, Chris? Well, yeah, I am, yeah. I don't feel bad about this either, unless that you're an unbeliever. And then, if you're an unbeliever, evangelism doesn't make any sense at all. Evangelism does not make sense if you're just a churchgoer or a person who's coming for some sort of uh, entertainment. That's poor entertainment, but you know, if that's what you're here for. Uh, evangelism doesn't make any sense for the person who hasn't been a blood-bought citizen of the kingdom of God. Uh, it's kind of like being a part of like a club that your kids are a part of and you know you, it's about time of the year to do fundraising and uh, you're going to sell Yankee candles for Christmas time like, and get ready in October to do that. You don't want to do it, but you'll do it. Uh, it's a duty. I need to get this done. I don't really want to do it. And some people hate it so much that they will buy up all their own candles so they don't have to sell to other people. A lot of us think of evangelism then as like, kind of slimy, kind of confrontational, kind of judgmental, and, you know, I just, I just don't really, I don't really want to do that. I, I don't really want to tell other people that and make them feel that way, and I'll just, I'll have lifestyle evangelism. I'll just have them look at my life. I don't, I don't need to use words. Um, you know, as long as we do our, you know, our every October duty, duty to, you know, to give away these candles or whatever, we're fine, we kind of feel like. Evangelism, though, seems like it feels like this, let me jump to the conference again. The conference brought up eight of the conversations that Jesus had with real people who had real problems, and they kept pointing back to the same thing. He worked with them, but he, he kept going back to one main thing, himself. He kept coming back to present himself as the way, the truth, and the life, as the living water, as the bread of life, as the fill-in-the-blank that's the answer to all of sin. 
And in each of these scenarios, you come and you see that all of them are going to end in some sort of hopeless failure if they are not answered. The Gentile woman at the well, constantly looking for water, constantly having to draw. The Syrophoenician woman with the demon-possessed daughter. Lazarus, dead in the tomb. The paralyzed man, doomed to a whole life lived on a bed. I mean, these are some real problems. Some stuff that's bad. That it's, it's a result of sin and struggle. And how does Jesus respond to them each time? We have like prophetic insights about the lady's five husbands. Remember that? Or we have uh, a real exorcism of the young girl. The demon is, is released. We have the resurrection of the dead. We have in Mark 2, this bedridden man who now is free and walks up and he walks away. And how does Jesus respond to each of them again? Yes, he helps them, but that's not his main emphasis ever. He responds with these very practical helps, but it's never the emphasis that either Jesus nor the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are trying to get across to us. The gospel isn't there to tell us to do a bunch of good things and Jesus is our example to follow after those things. It is presenting him as the good news. Over and over again, it's showing us that this is what it's about. In Mark 2, Jesus, again, when this man is lowered through the roof, they break through the roof, they lower this man who's a paralytic, he's paralyzed. We don't know anything else about him except that these men have such faith that they're going to drop this guy right in the middle of the crowd and hope something happens. And what does Jesus do when he sees them? Do you remember what he says? Uh, The author says this, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said, rise up, take your bed and walk, right? No, that's the second thing. What's the first thing he says? He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. If you think that the gospel is about doing good works and making the world around us better here on earth, you haven't even listened to Jesus. He starts with the most important thing and says, son, your sins are forgiven you. That's the real emphasis. Yes, just to show that he was actually the Messiah, that he had actually just forgiven his sins, he says, also stand up and walk out of here. And he does. All of these miracles are for the purpose of pointing back to the real miracle, that God would send his son to die on a cross for all of our sins. Last week we talked about Canaan. talked about divine judgment, that we all truly still deserve. What's happening in the Gospels is the revelation of the Word. Jesus himself has come. And it's because he has that we can have forgiveness of sin. That he can take the hit where we deserve every bit of it. We deserve the exact same thing. We are depraved. We are sinful. We were born in sin. The Bible tells us this. What do we think we're doing? That's why the Gospels declare Christ to us. Not just the healer. Not just the guy who can feed a bunch of people. Not the guy that can just, you know, uh, say very witty and smart things. He's the one that proclaims himself as the Messiah. And what we later will find out is what Jared read this morning, Isaiah 53, that he would be crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him, that we deserved every bit of that. And yet Christ stepped in, in love, and gave himself for us. Jesus is the good news over and over again. In each of these conversations, Jesus is encountering people who have real problems, real sickness, real demon possession, real death. Every time it's real. But he is using these things to point to their greater need. I think Caleb said it this morning, but like, you know, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, every single thing, 
one of the speakers was talking about, he's like, what if you own this building? What if you were a, you know, a guru at, at real estate and you own all of Virginia Beach? He's like, think bigger. All of North America, you own it. He's like, think bigger. You own the whole globe, every single part of it. It's yours. And you turn 72 a few days later, you're dead. What did it profit you? And you did not have Christ? You will suffer divine judgment. It is not worth your soul. And yet what he is showing us is if you'll take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me, me, me. Jesus keeps pointing to himself. He sounds so selfish, but he's actually the Messiah. So he can, he's proven himself over and over and over again. It's him. It's the one that everyone said would come. All the Old Testament prophets are pointing to him. This is the one, and he's able to do it. This is the Messiah that's worth listening to. Last week, we took the entire time to understand how a merciful and just God could order every man, woman, and child into Canaan, in Canaan to be slaughtered. We learn a lot of things, but at the heart of the message, if you remember, is the holiness of God and the depravity of the sinfulness of all of us, all of humanity. This is very bad news. Very, very bad news that God is holy and righteous and just. That's not really the bad news. That's great news. The bad news is that all of us have stiff-armed him and have rebelled against who he is and decided that we do not want to listen or obey, listen to or obey him. It's very bad news, just like Sodom, Gomorrah, like those who suffered the flood at Noah's day, like those in Canaan who suffered against the edge of the sword, and those who will suffer and die and be destroyed by the tongue, the, 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 the sword that will come out of the tongue of Jesus in the end when he will destroy all those in rebellion. That is what we are under, unless we will know this Christ, unless we will trust him as king, unless we will see him for who he truly is. These conversations that we've just mentioned here we see over and over again that Jesus is coming to our broken and sinful lives and offering himself as the answer. Listen to John 13, 7, 17. Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. We're not there yet. But in order that the world might be saved through him. He came so that he could offer salvation to all men. That's what he did when he, in his coming. In all the gospel writers, they tell us a story uh, and, and, they, and they tell us that Jesus himself, and this reason they're labeled as the Gospels, is because it's the good news that Jesus has actually come. He has come both to proclaim good news to the captives, um, and then they go straight to work. He, he, he shows us his own work that he is going to make possible and happen on the cross, his substitutionary atonement. Now, when we say that, we're not just trying to be theological and elite sounding, as though we really are impressing you with that. What we're talking about is that you need to know that these words are important because they are the work, the cross work that Jesus did means that you don't go to hell if you trust him and him alone. Let me explain it. We mean that although God could not allow for our sin to go unpunished, that has to happen. Sin must be punished. Although he could not allow for it to go unpunished, he made a way for sin to be punished and for us to be rescued at the same time. That's astounding. How? How could a good, merciful, just, perfect God do that? There's only one way. It's in the Gospels. It's Jesus coming himself. What do you think he did? Live a bunch of good works so we could have an example? No. 
He died the death that you and I could not die for others. He died the death that we deserve to die. He had the wrath of God poured out on him. And some miraculous way, by faith, we trust and know him, and he is our Lord, and we obey and submit to him and him alone. He gives us not only neutrality, he gives us his righteousness. Substitution. He has substituted. He has become our righteousness. And now instead of you and me taking the hit, Jesus took the hit. For my ugly sin and struggle and and pain and rebellion, I have the righteousness of Christ placed on my account. Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise God that he would do this. This is the gospel. This is the amazing thing. This is the message we have for the world. It's not just like, oh, I'm glad this room knows about this. This is the one that he said to proclaim to the world. That is our job. If we think it's slimy or judgmental or um, confrontational, that's, except for the slimy part, that's true. This is not slimy. This is the truth. This is confrontational. This is showing the true judgment that we deserve. It is telling the truth. But the good news doesn't stop just that you deserve hell. The good news continues on to show us that Christ came to pay for sinners. And that is the good news that we want to give to others. In each of these scenarios, each of these conversations Jesus has with these needed people, he uh, never just kind of hands a person a sandwich or a bottle of water and smiles. Hope that goes well for you. Or doesn't just heal them and send them on their way. Glad you made it through the clinic. He is constantly promoting and showing himself to be the real answer. It is Jesus and only Jesus. These conversations are very purposeful. It's clear. It's only him. And so when we talk about this together, we realize that there's, there's, there's no better message that we could tell someone that we actually love than Jesus Christ is king. And he is coming. And there will be a day when he judges all men who have rebelled against him. We don't like that because people don't like us. And I'll go right with Caleb. Caleb and I wept this week together over our own lack of love. Number two, for people around us. But number one, for our Savior. He uses us miraculously to proclaim Christ. To shine. You've been called a light and salt. That's your whole job. That's, that's my job. Is that I would tell the truth of the gospel to a lost and dying world. It's not rhetoric. It's the truth. It's what he does in our hearts and lives and we cannot help but speak the truth. So if I can, if I can say something, if this doesn't, if it doesn't ring any bell for you, uh, like it doesn't make any sense to you at all, let's go back to the content of the gospel. You need Christ. <laughs> May I make the call to you. If you do not know this Savior Jesus and you have not given him your life and you do not know him as the one who has given you new life, Repent of your sin and stop rebelling against him and thinking that you're the king of your life. Would you give it to Jesus and trust him? He is the only Lord. You can have all the stuff in your kingdom whenever you think it is. And if at the end you lose it, what good was it? There is true salvation in Jesus Christ and him alone. Brother and sister, those who know this Christ, those who say that you are his, that say he is my Lord and I am thankful and I love him, May I call us to the thing, the very thing that he called us by, the truth of the gospel. Some of you may say, well, I mean, I don't really like, you know, 
being rejected by other people. You know, I, I don't really want to be too honest with people and hurt their feelings. Those are all terrible excuses for not handing out the truth, for helping someone know that you love them enough to tell them the truth about who Christ is. This is not just go do more work, good works. Here's another good work to do. Oh, I got to do this. I got to my Bible. I got to pray. I got to tell other people about Jesus. This comes back to do you actually love this Savior or not? Do you understand who he is? And if we do, which, I'll, which, which is the reason we continually proclaim Christ over and over and over again, we must then, it's in our DNA, we must then be missionaries here to our group around us. Southampton Roads, your family, the people that are in your family, your kids, your parents, those that are in your neighborhood, those that you work with. Some of those people are the hardest ones to deal with. I know. It's difficult. But do we love this world or do we love Jesus Christ? Has he saved us or are we okay with living how we want to here? May I remind you that he is the one that has called us to himself and he owns us. You have been blood bought. May you tell that good news to another. This week I've been convicted over and over again that if I love my Savior and if I actually love my neighbor, I will make the gospel clear to them. No excuses. I know it's hard. We know it's hard. We promise. It's, it, it doesn't make me feel really, really happy to tell someone that they're being judged and going to hell. That, that's not like, I don't get a high from that. I mean, each time I, 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 I pray that God would just use his Holy Spirit, the one who made me alive, to do the same thing with them. One more note. Yes, speak the gospel. But please remember that it was the Spirit who made you born again. Please remember that you have, may have someone look face to face, you understand everything you're saying, and reject. I'm sure this room has many who have had that happen to them. where They've said the truth of the gospel in love and someone's rejected or said, I'm good, I'm fine. Remember that it's the Spirit that has to bring them to life. So let us pray and continue to speak the truth. Let us pray and ask the Holy Spirit to work, that he would open their eyes, that he take them from death to life. How's your prayer life about unbelievers? How often do you pray for your family or your neighbors or your coworkers that they would receive Christ? I'm saying these things because I'm so convicted about this. We should have prayer lists that come back and we, we, we cry over that the Lord would save these people. Trusting him that he is always good no matter what he decides to do. But asking him that he would save these people for his glory and his sake. I'm going to ask for the men to come forward in a moment here. Actually, come forward now if the men would just come and uh, we're going to have a time together at the Lord's table. Um, but I want to take a minute and pray first as they come forward and then we'll do this together. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for your great goodness to us. We do not deserve any of this, Lord, but in your good and graciousness, you have given us new life. We thank you for your love and I pray that this time around your table would be that of communion and special fellowship in Jesus' name.